Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. My name is Claire Lehman and I am Editor-in-Chief of Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. Our podcast is a team effort and is jointly hosted by myself, Associate Editor Toby Young and Canadian Editor Jonathan Kay. You can support our podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash Quillette and becoming a monthly patron. By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter. Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm Jonathan Kay. These have been strange times for American politics. Everyone knows that, but they've been especially strange for LGBT voters, who now have to face ideological radicalism from fellow progressives, even as they still face vestiges of traditional homophobia and transphobia from social conservatives. Just consider New York Times columnist Charles Blow, who erupted in fury after exit polls were announced following this month's U.S. election. In response to reports that the percentage of LGBT voters who supported Trump had nearly doubled from 2016 to 2020, Blow, who describes himself as bisexual, declared himself, quote, personally devastated. With me to discuss the changing face of LGBT politics in the United States is Brad Palumbo, a recent college graduate and Washington-based reporter and columnist. His articles for Quillette include The Politically Homeless Life of a Gay Conservative, Red Carded, How I Got Pushed Out of an LGBT Soccer League for Gender Wrong Thing, and It's Time for LGB and T to Go Their Separate Ways. I spoke to Brad this week over Skype. Here are excerpts from our conversation. We're having this conversation in the aftermath of the U.S. election, and there has been a lot of interesting commentary about the LGBT vote in the United States. And the only reason I'm asking you this is you sometimes in your journalism identify yourself as a gay writer. Some commentators, and I'm thinking of Charles Blow at the New York Times, he was angry that, according to some exit polls, the LGBT vote for Trump grew. Most LGBT voters still pick Biden, but does it surprise you that there was an uptick among self-identified LGBT voters for Trump? It actually doesn't surprise me. And this is one of the things I've covered. And I have kind of unique insight into this as the rare right-leaning, conservative-leaning member of the LGBT or gay community. But in 2016 against Hillary Clinton, President Trump got about 13% of the LGBT vote. Now, for this time around, 2020 against Joe Biden, we only have exit polls. However, those exit polls show that Trump got about 28% of the LGBT vote. That could be revised, so it could go down slightly or even substantially. There's zero doubt that Trump improved his standing with LGBT voters from 2016. And here's why this interests me, John. I'm not a Trump supporter for many reasons. He's got all sorts of problems, but they, interestingly enough, have almost nothing to do with LGBT issues. I found that on that issue, he's very much not a culture war, social conservative, anti-gay guy at all. And a lot of that is really a fake narrative that's crafted by critics or members of the activist class who have spun this narrative of him as an anti-LGBT president that is either exaggerated or sometimes based not at all in fact. So I think the vote reflects that. There's a lot of Americans who didn't vote for Trump, like myself, for other reasons, Actual LGBT people did not believe the activists who claimed he was the most anti-gay president in American history. 
even though he supported gay marriage. And as I've actually written about for Quillette, he launched an international campaign to decriminalize homosexuality. So LGBT voters just showed us that they did not buy the narrative that he was wickedly anti-LGBT because they just, like any individual, decided for themselves on other issues to vote for him or not, and there was an improvement there. I'm considerably older than you, and... In the 90s, there were just a lot of homophobic bigots within the Republican Party at the time. Uh, there still are, but they're just, they're fewer and they're more quiet. I know you're younger and that I'm talking about an era that you can't remember, but as somebody who's an out gay man and who's a conservative, do you still feel like you're in a niche or are you part of the conservative mainstream in Washington? Well, I think that the thing about me that makes me not part of the conservative mainstream always is not being gay. That is not the factor. There's other reasons here or there where I disagree with some things or I might be out of the loop because I'm a bit of a heterodox thinker and analyst. What you're describing is all too real. I mean, Pat Buchanan on the GOP stage in the 90s went on a viciously homophobic rant at the national convention. And the gay Republicans at that time were this small marginal group and they were mortified by it and they were really depressed about the prospects of their party. I mean, even going back to 2000. 2012 or 2008, it was really still in many ways an anti-gay party and movement. I think Trump really shattered that mold. He ran on, yeah, I'm fine with gay marriage. He was the first one to enter office okay with it. He's been close with gay people for decades. The ship has sailed. You have almost a majority, I think not quite, but maybe a plurality of Republican voters supporting gay marriage now. And then you have wide majorities actually support anti-discrimination protections for gay and transgender people. There is still, I think, a small segment of the right that is very religious. And some of those people, though not all, I think are homophobic or have anti-trans prejudices. And that is still a thing. But it's very much more so mainstream than normalized to be in right of center America or in the Republican Party and be gay and be out. I think you have to almost look at it just like you do with all of the country as a generational question. So with Republicans under 39, it's a totally sailed ship. Now, the trans question is a little bit different and we can talk about that. But in terms of gay marriage, being gay, being chill with it, it really is, at least in the younger generation of Republicans and conservatives, totally old news. Not completely, but pretty broadly. In Canada, when I speak to conservative groups on campus, no one talks about it. It's just part of the settled intellectual landscape. But this makes me think of, I think this may have been the first piece you wrote for me. You moved to Washington or the Washington area. And you joined, if I'm getting this right, an LGBT soccer league. Yeah. And whereas maybe like 30 or 40 years ago, you may have worried about people in pickup trucks coming and beating you up because you're gay or something. In this case, you had a very different experience coming from the other side of the spectrum. And a lot of it had to do with social media. Can you tell that story? I found it really interesting. So what happened is when I moved to D.C., I came and worked for a conservative political magazine. I had an interesting experience, right, as kind of a young cosmopolitan conservative, openly gay, very vocal on social media about this stuff, plopping inside a conservative news room. It was interesting, but nobody was ever, even in the slightest way, rude or impolite or looked at me funny for being gay. I'm certainly worked with people who were religious conservatives and I'm sure believe traditional Catholic doctrine about homosexuality being sinful and all of this. 
But it was very much a mutual just respect for our differences. The boss who hired me was a devout, devout Catholic very socially conservative, but politically libertarian in the sense that he didn't want to force his beliefs on me and he didn't want me to force my beliefs that are not religious onto him. And so we very much got along and were very simpatico on policy and political questions because we had that thread and we actually had a really great relationship. So I certainly had a lot of online homophobia from like anonymous alt-right accounts and that kind of thing. But my actual experience with people in the real world moving into conservative political Washington, D.C., wasn't really much of that at all. Now, what's funny, like you mentioned, is that the LGBT community in D.C. was not so friendly to me. Now, the LGBT community broadly is a very left-wing subset of society, but particularly so in Washington, D.C., because many of these people here are the ones who work for Democratic politicians or they work for LGBT activist groups that are essentially Democrat branches and are very liberal and openly political and partisan. And so there's a very much a concentration of not just a lot of gay people here, but particularly a lot of extremely politically involved gay people who skew left wing. And so when I was just trying to branch out socially, I joined a gay men's soccer league and it went fine, but I was actually eventually ostracized and kind of mobbed in a social media dogpiling and then pushed out of the group because they found problematic the fact that I had written columns about, while I'm perfectly fine with adult people doing whatever they want and transitioning if that's what's best for them, I'm not comfortable with potentially irreversible chemical or medical transitions of underage children. But that position that is held by, I'm sure, much of the public, if we're being frank, got me canceled from the gay men's soccer league and I was no longer welcome because I had the wrong opinions. This is something I've observed here in Canada is that off Twitter, outside of the official acronymed human rights organizations, people exhibit common sense about this sort of thing. Like my understanding of Washington, some of these organizations Maybe I'm thinking of the ACLU and the Campaign for Human Rights. Often within those organizations, it's one or two people who are really the ideological enforcers on these things. Do people talk candidly about this in the LGBT world? And I know it's not one world and it's not like a club you meet every week, but do people discuss some of the forms of ideological control, which are just not only out of step with mainstream society, but with mainstream LGBT culture? Well, it's interesting because I actually notice a parallel here between college campuses. I went to an extremely left-wing U.S. university, the University of Massachusetts Amherst. It's the only openly Marxist economics department, which I was a student of economics. You wrote about that for me. It's kind of like having a homeopathic medical department. Right. Basically, it was a very left-wing campus, but it was a very loud and angry and vocal 15% of the student body that basically everyone else didn't really believe their craziness, but knew that they would get called all sorts of names and mobbed and picketed and protested if they said anything. So they basically just outsourced or deferred to that crazy mob and then went about their business and let those people run the student government and push the administration and dictate the curriculum and all of that. I would say honestly that a similar thing happens with the LGBT community where the 10% of LGBT Inc., right, the people that work for these activist organizations, many of them are these radical ideologues. Many of them, especially the young ones, have sort of an illiberal mentality of censoring hate speech and wanting to 
cancel people. So they're not really advocating for, I think, the traditional vision of kind of a pluralist free society. They're advocating for a slow motion left wing ideological totalitarianism. But that is not, like you said, representative. The truth is, though, that because of their historical embrace of bigotry, bad rhetoric, bad messaging, a lot of people in the LGBT community feel like the Republicans just aren't an option, right? They feel like they're liberal Democrats by default. And part of that is changing, like we talked about with Trump. But part of that is a failure of the American right to really make people feel like they have an alternative, both on the far right and the far left. They think your sexuality should determine how you vote. <laughs> the sensible people, I think, in right of center America, and even on left of center of America, should want to live in a country where LGBT people are just individuals like anyone else. So whether they vote Democrat or Republican is based about what they think on taxes and foreign policy and abortion and on education and et cetera, right? Where they don't have to be some uniform identity block. People always ask me, and, and I actually think people like Trump really aren't very anti-LGBT with a few exceptions, but also I kind of question their premise that that has to be my number one voting issue. I mean, don't I get to be an individual? Don't I get to be a person who has extremely closely held ideological and policy beliefs? So I guess that's the direction I want to see, but that is certainly not the direction manifested in kind of the LGBT activist world of its most extreme silos in Washington, D.C. And now a message from our commercial supporters at BetterHelp, the online counseling service that helps people everywhere become happier and more productive. At BetterHelp.com, you'll connect with your professional licensed therapist in a safe, private, online environment using secure video, phone, online chat, or text. Anything you share is, of course, strictly confidential. While BetterHelp isn't a crisis line, new clients can start communicating with their counselor in under 24 hours. When self-help methods aren't enough and you seek professional counseling, BetterHelp can connect you to a network of thousands of licensed therapists. And you can switch therapists to make sure you get the right fit. Licensed counselors include specialists in sleep, trauma, family conflicts, LGBT matters, grief, and self-esteem. So many people are using BetterHelp that they're recruiting additional counselors in all 50 U.S. states. BetterHelp is more affordable than traditional offline counseling. There's no awkward waiting room, and you can message your BetterHelp counselor at any time. Financial aid is available in some cases. Join over 1 million others who are taking charge of their mental health by visiting BetterHelp, that's H-E-L-P, dot com. Quillette listeners get 10% off their first month's service with the discount code Quillette. Just go to betterhelp.com slash Quillette. And now, back to our podcast. We had on the podcast a trans woman who lives in Indianapolis, which is a fairly large city, but as you can imagine, doesn't have the most progressive culture. One thing that she described to me is she said, it's really unfortunate, is that it's a small trans community and I don't really have any trans friends because my beliefs are heterodox. She's somebody who rejects a lot of the dogma that is popular among ideological enforcers. And as a result, she has a fairly lonely life because she doesn't have support. 
Is Washington, by contrast to a place like Indianapolis, is it big enough that you can be an ideologically heterodox member of the LGBT community and still have a vibrant social community and be able to go about your life in a confident way with a peer group and not feel isolated because of your beliefs? Yes and no. For example, now that I'm a little bit known, at least in the LGBT circles, as a conservative journalist for the work that I've done, I've been told many times not to show my face in D.C five or six gay bars. Now, I don't go to bars anyway, but they don't know that. Or I'll be thrown out on the streets. Or people say that if they see me, they'll punch me because you should punch Nazis. So I certainly think that much of the community and the culture is closed off to people who are open and known for being conservative. What happens is a lot of the time, a lot of gay people work for Republicans on the Hill, work for Fox News behind the scenes or what have you, and they can just kind of blend in and they just zip their lip and go about the gay community and they're fine. But really people who are open and known are not welcome. And there are a fair number of gay Republicans or gay conservatives in the city And so there is like a chapter of log cabin Republicans, et cetera, but it's still a fairly small niche. And I'm just also not particularly drawn to it in the sense that I just have regular people friends. Uh, I just play soccer with now a non-gay men's league and I'm friends with those guys and I have friends I met from work. So I would say basically I don't have actually any gay friends here in Washington, D.C., except for a few who I met through right of center politics. (laughs) So, yeah, it is pretty limited in terms of the actual community itself. But I also think it's good that people don't really need that community anymore, by and large, because they're able to just be people. Many of the articles you write and stuff I see you address on social media has nothing to do with LGBT issues. You wrote a great piece for Quillette called Press Censorship Has Always Hurt Democracy in the Age of COVID-19. It's also killing people. And that was about the information we did and didn't know about what was going on in China. But then I remember a few weeks after that, you also, because of who you are, you do get drawn into some of these issues. And you wrote another very different article for us called The Outing of Lady G, Humiliating a Closeted Gay Republican in the Name of LGBT Rights. The piece you wrote was part of a larger conversation, I guess, that's been going on for decades about outing people against their will especially when they're accused of political hypocrisy. Can you talk a little bit about that debate and where that debate now stands within Washington, at least? I'm guessing that's not the only lawmaker or public figure who does lead two different lives. Certainly not. And it is kind of a complicated debate that has been going on for some time. But the story in a nutshell is that there's a senator in the Republican caucus who is basically openly known as being privately gay. And a bunch of sex workers from D.C. started posting publicly and exposing him and calling him out and reeling very humiliating details about his body and about his sex life. And it was really kind of ugly and sad and cringy stuff. Now, people will say, well, this Republican supports anti-LGBT policies and yada, yada, yada. And it's like, yes and no. I mean, you can find most of the policies that this guy has supported, Joe Biden supported a decade ago. So that's a dangerous game to play, really. More importantly, I think the way that I describe it to people is it it just comes down to outing someone is a violation of their privacy and an act of cruelty. Do you believe that cruelty against your political opponents is justified? I would say no. I would say I don't resort to tactics, even when the person is a hypocrite, even when the person is a bad person or I hate them. I don't want to inflict cruelty onto others, whereas I think 
the left-wing activist LGBT community, many of them are okay with inflicting cruelty on the wrong kind of gay person. And I think that's a really noxious mentality. People talk about Trump derangement syndrome. I don't tend to use that term, but I think it's absolutely true that Donald Trump has both been a symptom and a cause of political tribalization in the United States. And I can't imagine how much worse it must be within the political circles that you report on. It's been a few weeks now since the U.S. election. Have you noticed any indicators that maybe things are softening a little and people on both sides are stepping back from some of their tribal postures? Unfortunately, no. And this is largely Trump's own fault because of his refusal to concede the election that he lost. Ultimately, he will concede after all of his legal challenges are thrown out of court. But the reason that that hasn't started to happen is because a big portion of the country and a big portion of the right-wing kind of commentariat is just pushing stuff about voter fraud and stolen election that, listen, voter fraud happens, but their narrative is just fantastical. It would be unimaginable that the result of the election could be changed by any claim of voter fraud. In It would have to be in so many different states, by so many tens of thousands of votes. It's just very, very, very unlikely And so it's still kind of unfortunately in that ultra tribal state. What I'm hoping for, though, is that when the dust settles and we do start to move on and everyone acknowledges Joe Biden is going to be the president as much as I dislike much of what he stands for and wants to do. And as much as I think some of the people he'll bring in are really radical and extreme, he's going to be the president. He won the election fair and square. Republicans are probably going to keep the Senate. And I'm hoping that at that point we can maybe take the temperature down a little and go back to normal and maybe retreat from our tribal positions just a little bit. You used the term extremist to describe at least some of the people surrounding Joe Biden. I went to New Hampshire to cover some of the primaries for Quillette. In that context, Biden always struck me as the moderate because he was being compared with people like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, who on a lot of issues actually, I thought, ran to the left of Bernie Sanders. Can you tell us more what you mean by extremism? And I know you're not talking about Biden himself, but some of the people around him. Biden himself is not a radical or an extremist, though I will point out that I've broken down his policy agenda and his campaign platform. It is very far to the left of where Democrats were even in 2016 on issues such as a $15 minimum wage, a public option in health care, student debt cancellation. These are all things that Hillary Clinton said no to in 2016 that now Biden says yes to. It would not be correct to act as if he is very moderate. He has certainly moved substantially to the left along with the party, but he is absolutely a relative moderate compared to, like you mentioned, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. But what I mean when I say there are radical people surrounding Biden is, I mean, look at who he selected for his vice president. Kamala Harris, she's ranked by GovTrag.us for the 2019 legislative term as to the left of Bernie Sanders. She has never really found a government expansion of power that she didn't like. And she, I think, would honestly go along with anything to get ahead. And then she's also fully, fully left wing on the social justice train, right? The critical race theory stuff, all the stuff that you can say Joe Biden, to his credit, certainly does not personally believe. Similarly, 
I mean, Bernie Sanders is being seriously considered and discussed as Biden's secretary of labor. Elizabeth Warren is being discussed as a possible secretary of the treasury. And in both cases, that would be quite extreme from the conservative point of view and probably entail a lot of regulation and policies that that I would strenuously think are bad. Now, those are just possibilities. It's also equally possible that he, especially if Republicans keep control of the Senate, which for uh, checks and balances purposes, I'm certainly rooting for, that Biden will put more centrist mainstream nominees in these positions. So I think the danger of a Biden administration being infiltrated by radicals is a hypothetical danger. It is certainly not guaranteed because the Democratic Party is basically undergoing a schism. Is it going to be the party of Joe Biden and Amy Klobuchar and basically kind of sensible left of center, solid Democrats or the party of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Ilhan Omar and other people who are objectively far left radicals and have what I view as very extreme and dangerous ideas on many issues? So the Biden administration is going to be a microcosm of that broader schism, and I'm hoping it falls on the side of moderation and sanity. And now a commercial message from virtual private network service provider NordVPN. NordVPN was born in 2012 when four childhood friends came together to build technology that could liberate the internet. Each of these founders had spent a lot of their time in different parts of the world where internet censorship, content control, and intrusive surveillance had become a growing problem. Eight years later, NordVPN serves more than 14 million people worldwide. A virtual private network gives you online privacy and anonymity by creating a private network from a public internet connection. It's not the sort of technology that I ever thought would be relevant to my own life, but governments in even free countries, like Canada, where I live, are starting to muse openly about censoring the internet, and many of us are looking for technological solutions to make sure that doesn't affect us. NordVPN provides access to more than 5,000 super-fast servers in more than 50 countries, a 30-day money-back guarantee, and even if you're not worried about online access and security at home, you can also install it on your mobile devices across a range of operating systems, so it protects you and your data while traveling in airports, coffee shops, and other locations. You get 24-7 customer support, up to six simultaneous connections, double data encryption for increased anonymity, and no data logging. Plus, you don't have to be a techie to use it. NordVPN has a simple extension for your Chrome browser, which is lightweight and user-friendly from the first click. It secures your browsing in seconds. As part of a special deal for Quillette listeners, good until Black Friday on November 27th, every purchase of a two-year plan will get you four additional months free. Go to nordvpn.com Quillette and use our coupon code Quillette at checkout. And now back to our podcast. Just to push back on that, look, I guess this is <laughs> this is a discussion about where our baseline is for extremism, because some of the Trump appointees, and I'm thinking of a guy like Mike Pompeo, who, you know, a few days ago, he was saying, we look forward to a smooth transition to the second Trump term. Like, if you want to look at extremism, and I'm not even talking about ideological extremism, I'm talking about extreme autocratic seeming loyalty to the current president. Does anything you're seeing on the Biden side compare in terms of it being unsettling to you compared to some of the behavior from Trump appointees? Well, yes, it does. But let's not take this as me defending what Pompeo said or anything like that. I thought what he said was alarming, though I think in context, he was joking sort of, but jokes like that from the Secretary of 
of state are totally inappropriate. I was saying in terms of ideological extremity, I certainly will posit that the Trump orbit is full of very unsavory and corrupt characters. But I will say that the Trump administration, with the exception of like two issues, immigration and trade, has been fairly mainstream Republican policy. Whereas the Democrats, when I'm describing extremism, we're talking about a radical transformation of the policies that would affect tens of millions and hundreds of millions of Americans. And, you know, maybe I'm a policy journalist, so maybe that's just more where my head is at. But I will also point out, though, that it's not just policy where some of these people are extreme. A lot of these more extreme Democratic actors support what I would view as assaults on American norms and our current governmental order, like packing the Supreme Court. Packing the Supreme Court is something that Kamala Harris is open to, AOC wants to do, lots of top Democrats want to do. The late Ruth Bader Ginsburg said that there was no better way to undermine and destroy the institution of the Supreme Court than to pack it full of sympathetic justices that will uphold your agenda. Yet that's something that many, many mainstream Democrats in Biden's orbit now support. So that's the kind of thing where I would say, yeah, Mike Pompeo and some other people in the Trump orbit have really got some serious red flags and concerns with the things they've done. But I would be remiss in giving the impression that those similar worries, albeit in a different form, aren't also present in kind of the insurgent Democratic left. Are we now entering maybe a new golden age for people who actually like to cover policy, where somebody like you can spend more time writing about the details of the policies of the new incoming Democratic presidential administration? Is it in some ways a relief that the news cycle won't be dominated by just some bizarro press conference that Donald Trump gave yesterday? I mean, it's a relief for me personally. I will say the last few years in the Trump era, so often the discussion would be either about something Trump said or something about what someone said about Trump or something someone tweeted. I think the upside of a Joe Biden presidency in many ways is just that you won't have to worry about the entire news cycle being derailed by some unhinged tweet. And so for a policy journalist like me, I want to have the debate over the corporate tax rate. I want to have the debate over whether or not to increase taxes, whether or not to have a public option under Medicare expansion whether or not to regulate Section 230 repeal, whether or not to regulate the labor market and erode the gig economy, all these things that Biden will support, but Republicans in the Senate will oppose, those are, to me, meaningful debates about how best to advance our society. And absolutely, I'm excited to cover more of that and spend more time talking about that and less time talking about Trump tweets and people's reactions to him. Because love or hate Donald Trump, the one thing he is amazing at is sucking up all the attention in the room. And so I'm ready to exhale. One last question, and this is kind of a big picture question about your career. It wasn't so long ago you were a college student. You're obviously somebody who could have picked a lot of things to do in life. Are you happy you became a journalist? I am, honestly. I consider myself blessed. I wake up every day and I get to do the work that I love. There's a Republican commentator who I don't always agree with, but she has a slogan that she brands herself with, born for the storm. And I kind of view myself that way in that I just like being in the fray. And I like going back and forth and sparring about ideas. A few points over the last few years, 
I almost reconsidered and said, maybe I made a mistake. There was a time where the alt-right really targeted me quite viciously. The Daily Stormer and the literal website of the KKK was writing about me. Wow, that's more than alt-right. They're literal Nazis, yeah. And they were bombarding my work with phone calls and emailing my boss and trying to get me fired. And there's been other times where very prominent people have insulted me or gone ad hominem at me on Twitter or I've been mobbed. And those are the moments where it's rough, right? And you're like, what is this all for? But actually the work of discussing and debating policy and ideas, to me, I mean, there's nothing better than to be paid to do that. And I'm lucky enough that I've been able to do that. And that's what I want to keep doing. You're at a certain age, I think a lot of people might identify with where the people you went to college with, maybe some of them have started to graduate from law school, and they've got nice jobs. They might even be making more money than a journalist. Does that not give you second thoughts? To me, it was never about the money. If my goal was to make money, I wouldn't have ever become a journalist. I decided a long time ago that waking up excited about the work I was going to do was a lot more important to me than just making bank. Um, I mean, I have friends who work in tech or work in business and they make a crap ton of money and they're, you know, 24, 25, but the work is like a chore for them. I wake up Monday morning ready to go, itching to write. And so I wouldn't trade that for a bigger salary or a fancier degree. I'm pretty happy with it, at least as of right now. Brad Palumbo, Washington-based pundit and journalist, host of the Breaking Boundaries podcast. Thank you so much for joining us on the Quillette podcast. Thanks for having me. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to quillette.com where you will find more content.